welcome to the first ever episode 9 of Fintech Insider. It's good to have you with us as always. And we are coming to you live from Level 39, the heart of fintech here in Canary Wharf in London. And today's episode is all about what makes London so great and also what makes fintech great. Uh, We'll be joined by Lawrence Wintermeyer, the CEO of Innovate Finance. And of course, we've got our guests uh, joining us from Bud, uh, Jamie and Ed. With that, it's time for the news. This week, joining us for the news, we have Ed and Jamie from Bud. Gents, say hello a little bit about what Bud does. Jamie, first. Hi, Jamie Campbell, uh, Head of Customer Experience. Um, Bud is a one platform to use any financial product. That's just in case you forgot from like four episodes yeah. ago when these guys were on before. Yeah, obviously. the reintroduction. <laughs> it's a nice snappy, uh, snappy elevator pitch though now. Yeah. Like it. Yeah, we, we missed that one off last time. <laughs> we listened to it back and was like, I don't know what we do. <laughs> 101, go back, to, go back to sales training. And, and that's Ed for the benefit of the listeners. So the news today, what's happening in the wide, wide world of fintech? Um, first and foremost, though, it seems like in the independent, Apple says, uh, Apple tax, UK says it welcomes any company after tech giant hit with 11 billion Irish tax bills. So the UK is really trying to get its like uh, flex on here and be like, hey, I know you're struggling with the EU, but we had this Brexit thing, and <laughs> you you might want to come over here now. Like we've got this whole little world going on, and this is this is a fun story because I think that there's uh, been a lot of lobbying by a lot of governments to try and play in the broader tech space. You know, everybody wants the the tech companies now. And um, Jimmy, you you picked the story up and wanted to share it with us. So so what's going on here? I think what was what was interesting is you know we we're seeing kind of. In the US as well, with, with Donald Trump kind of saying, hey, we want companies coming here as well. Are we going to enter this new mini tax haven war across, you know, multiple different, um, multiple different countries, which I think is just, it's, it's going to be a very peculiar state of affairs. Potentially, yeah. So we're, we're going to see tax for very large organizations get less rather than more. You know, I think, um, I think we were saying earlier on, didn't they haven't Apple paid almost nothing tax wise for globally for best part of the about five years. So 2014, 0.0005% tax. It's insane, isn't it? Yeah. Got, it's like a reverse Robin Hood tax, isn't it? It's like <laughs> <laughs> rob from the poor with shiny devices and give to the Apple. You, you've, you've got to feel sorry for, for Apple, you know. Picking on poor little Apple. <laughs> and, and to be honest, everyone else is doing it, right? So if you go over to Dublin, you know, it's all these big American companies um, doing what they call the double Irish, which is a, a fun little play, um, which basically is all around IP. That sounds like a great drink. Yeah, it is a great drink. And actually, that is what is required. If you have to do the double Irish, you have to do the double, double Irish <laughs> um, as well when you're there. So, um yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of almost a strange thing in terms of competition for companies globally, right? So if you're not doing this and you're a small little company trying to compete with Apple, and let's say you're not doing this fancy double Irish thing, you're at a like competitive disadvantage. So I think actually, as much as, you know, corporations can help people and make employment, you know, you're still not allowing people to compete with big organizations by giving them these special reliefs. So I wonder as well, is it giving them special reliefs or is it um, being, are we seeing the beginnings of mega corporates being able to bend the will of nation states, you know, where you've kind of got to the point where uh, a large company has such effective lawyers and such effective lobbyists um, and they wield so much power in terms of the employment they create that um, the governments want them there, they want the employment and they're like, well, do we need the tax revenues because you 
kind of employing half of the country. So it, it, it creates Arguably, this- it's like been like that for a while in the States, right? That's basically how the legal systems works in America, isn't it? Based on, I'm basing most of this on House of Cards, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. But, so, but uh, you know, it's, it's sad to see that kind of seeping into Europe, isn't it, in terms of actually where we are? Well, I think if, especially if you're a small company, right? Like, I don't know, like Bud, um, and you don't have a, an army of tax engineers that can find... Well, do we? <laughs> or do you? That's our power play. Uh, or, or maybe that's what you're doing with AI. Yeah. <laughs> Buzzword. Oh, machine learning. Yes, oh, yeah, machine yeah. learning, tax engineering. Yes. So, but then, you know, as a small company, there's there's kind of all of these things like, yeah, come start, start up your company. We're, we're the home of fintech or now Berlin's going to be the home of fintech. Hey, maybe all the fintech startups are going to go to Dublin. Uh, yeah, but then you still, the odds are stacked against you compared to the really big companies. So breaking through is still pretty tough. It's uh, worth noting that the Irish finance minister, uh, Michael Noonan, said that he disagrees profoundly with the findings of the commission. So um, I'm sure there'll be an appeal down the line so that other companies like, you know, the likes of Salesforce or whoever else is based out there don't uh, see this as a, as a warning sign and, and flee the double Irish. Flee the double Irish sounds, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like a drinking game. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so uh, next up, uh, we've got a story coming out of Fortune. Uh, Beware of blockchain hype, says the CEO of a company called Chain, um, so Chain.com, the CEO, Adam Ludwin, uh, looks particularly hipster, I must say, with his round glasses and his oversized shirt. Um, I'm just a bit jealous of what he's wearing, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> Looking but, at you now. Yeah. Just, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't oversized, it's perfectly sized. Uh, so what we've got here is kind of a very simple statement that says, blockchain is a database for money. I don't understand why people talk about it in terms of health records and home deeds and voting systems. And it refers to a flurry of news stories about how blockchain-based tools will transform how we do just about everything, how we sign for uh, land registries to legal contracts. Uh, And he's kind of saying, no, this is about disrupting banks. You know, I want my blockchain, not your blockchain. Uh, And it kind of struck me as almost being like, no, I don't want to use my phone as a camera, and I don't want to use it to text people. I want to use it to make phone calls. And it's like, well, no, the the world has moved on, and people have found other utility for this tool. So, So why not let them do it? I think there's this view in the blockchain space that says um, if Bitcoin can't do it or you can't do it on Bitcoin, then it has to be useless or you probably want to use something old. And people are missing this whole uh, spectrum of possibilities. And don't get me wrong, look, there's a ton of hype out there about blockchain. I did see a story where a fire department claimed they could save lives with blockchain. And it's like, really? I don't know about that one. I, I think, <laughs> I think on, scale. On, on this one, I, I think it's kind of a, you read it and you're like, yep, okay, you know, blockchain, too much hype. We get that. That makes sense. We're with you. We're with you. And then it's like, why should it be used for anything else? And it's like, okay, you've just kind of lost me. So, you know, I think there are, there is some sense in here. And I think what Adam was saying sort of makes sense. Um, but I think the, you know, the options and the use cases beyond just payments and banking for, for blockchain are endless, quite frankly. So I think it's also Ludwin taking a shot across the bow of R3, right? So Ludwin says chain stands out because it's a Silicon Valley tech company with a tech first focus that the likes of R3 don't possess. Deep burn, Mr. And and look, I I know Adam pretty well. He's he's a friend of mine. And uh, I know they're actually really smart guys who uh, are like listening to what banks need and trying to come at it with an engineering perspective. And we talk often about, like, we need to engineer solutions to stuff, right? We, we need to start thinking like engineers. And we, we were saying, was it last week that uh, I, I spent 
two years in a bank and I never met a single engineer. And it's like, the, okay, so there is a need for a bit more Silicon Valley culture there, but do we need to assume that we have all the knowledge and that all the people in banks are stupid and that nobody could ever understand it inside of R3? Um, so I think it's right that somebody's going to want to uh, have a little PR and, and get some attention for what they do. But, but it's, a, it's a strange way of getting PR because it's almost behind the times. You know, I think we went, we got by the kind of maximum hype for blockchain and then suddenly everyone was talking about how blockchain was overhyped, which then drove that, uh, if you're going to be a hipster in blockchain, you were like, oh yeah, everyone's well overhyping it now. <laughs> so it's, we've almost gone down that curve. Again. I knew blockchain before it was cool. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, I think one of, the, one of the things as well for me is, you know, by just calling it blockchain and not calling it a blockchain or the blockchain, you know, you, you don't accept that there could be other possibilities for it. You know, there are many versions of what a blockchain can be used for. Um, and I think throughout this, I kept on, I kept reading it thinking, you mean a blockchain? Like <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to, a blockchain is, is supposed to be for money. That is very true. But a blockchain could be for, you know, educational records or. It kind of I saw a great uh, article that was comparing blockchain with wheel. I knew you were going to go for it, and I jumped in first. <laughs> Damn and, you, Jason. <laughs> and it was talking about, you know, if you replace blockchain with wheel, it's like wheels are, you know, amazing, and you're like, yeah. I, I don't think they even even uh, pluralized it, so wheel is an amazing new technology. <laughs> wheel will revolutionize transport. Yeah. It just like, it feels... <laughs> it's like, what is wheel? It, just, it, it is awkward, right? But people, blockchain, will. It, it's this singular noun thing that suggests there is one of them, whereas actually... Actually, there's there's you know, an explosion of possibilities within there, and within that, it's not just chaining blocks of transactions. It's how do you manage contracts? How do you manage shared computer code? A whole bunch of stuff. But the closer you get to blockchain, right, the bigger and crazier this this ecosystem becomes. Where actually, the, you've got the hardcore Bitcoin maximalists, you've got the Ethereum guys, you've got all sorts going on. So. Um, it's, this is going to be one that continues to evolve. but uh, yeah. yeah, and I guess building on the blockchain theme, the, uh, the next story we had up was that IBM had bridged blockchain and AI with a new business unit. That's buzzword bingo right there. I, like, that's a line, isn't it, if not house? Well, I, I look at it from a more optimistic viewpoint that actually how these new trends and waves of technology are overlapping is really interesting. You know, you bring in Internet of Things with blockchain, with machine learning, you know, with a, a whole host of, of other technologies. And you start to to not focus myopically on one technology type, but actually look at how these things interact. Because yeah. we are seeing, you know, with ubiquitous networks and data centers and, you know, cloud computing, just amazing opportunities arise at the intersection of these things. So, so I'm quite, I'm quite interested by this whole sort of Watson meets blockchain and how does that work? Mm -hmm. So, uh, the guest we had last week, Vinay Gupta, was talking about where do do the technologies that are three to five years out start to converge? So, where do drones and Internet of Things meet with needing tamper-proof? technologies like blockchain and engineers wet dreams yeah. uh, yes. where do uh, where do drones interact with ai and needing to be autonomous in some way where does that interact with vr and ar and needing to you know fly drones from the other side of the world who knows there's there's all of these intersections of technology that as they come together the mash the mashing together of those becomes comes super interesting i i sort of see this one slightly differently i, I kind of um I, I wonder whether this is you know blockchain and ai 
way, despite all the investment that um, IBM have made in, in Watson, is this them trying to really establish it as a practice? You know, we sort of see a lot of the big organizations, the big banks really having to start something on the side to really get it away from the culture of the rest of the organization. And this is this really IBM's attempt to really up their game in blockchain, up the game in AI. And in order to do that, they have to get the rest of the organization out of the way. Well, they've, they've also, I mean, they've called the business unit, the division, uh, industry platforms. Um, but really, it's stuff people don't understand, isn't it? Yeah. It's like AI and blockchain. That's just where the magic happens. It's, it's the home of what? buzzwords. Yeah. It is. And, and the, the core development that's happening in the blockchain space is happening in two places. It's happening in open source communities like Tendermint. It's happening in Blockstream, a little bit in Hyperledger. You know, it's really happening in these sorts of forums, the Bitcoin core developers, um, R3. You know, these, these communities are really moving the subject forward, which uh, are kind of still not owned by any one company, uh, whereas AI is happening very much in the, the halls of um, Facebook and Amazon and Alibaba. So that's definitely coming from a company. So IBM find themselves in this really interesting middle position, kind of like your dad getting a mobile phone for the first time. Like, I, I've got to do this too now. I've, I can't do what I did with my old mobile phone with it. I've got to learn some new skills. So kind of creating this new division is, is kind of a new set of skills that any large organization has to take on. I think David's got a good point there. What I, what I hope it's not. And what I, I, I worry with the Microsoft's latest play for enterprises also, is this just a company, a big company who has a, a large footprint enterprise and wants to be in the enterprise on everything, getting their first foot in the door? So, and, and then creating a, a terrible legacy problem five years down the line when something else comes and is relevant and works for these enterprises. We've, we've actually got Devika on next week, haven't we, from, from Watson. So I, I guess, you know, good timing for this one. We can ask her herself next week. Yeah, send in your questions, <laughs> listeners, uh, on a postcard. All right, so uh, next story up, Australian Financial Review, ANZ Bank ups cloud focus with open networks for fintech collaboration, which, uh, which is an interesting one, David, because I think um, we, we've had a couple of stories before about ANZ being very um, comfortable on our um, Asia-Pacific episode with their um, 40-year-old core system called Hogan, which I think um, makes me think of Hulk Hogan being a wrestling fan. Um, it instinctively makes me like that platform, doesn't it? But he has had two hip replacements yeah. and probably had something dodgy going on with Gorka for a little That's while. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think this is a you know Chris is obviously not uh, not with us today, which makes him sound like he's dead, which he isn't. Obviously, the idea that this platform is you know up and running, cloud focused, all all the kind of things that they need to be doing with it um, when it is a sort of forty plus year old. Um, core banking engine in terms of what's what's there just feels a little bit like we're not really getting the true story here Mm -hmm. you know there's there's kind of a bit of a mishmash between what's being said from a pr perspective in in this article around uh you know what they're doing and how they're doing it and you know how the 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 new lady from google's kind of going to revolutionize what they're doing without changing all the legacy tech that they've got behind the scenes so it just sort of seems like there's a bit, bit of a mishmash, and I, and I do wonder at what point we're, we're really going to get the real story of what's actually happening there. Yeah, we've got this nice old engine from the 1960s, which is a gas guzzler, but we've put a Tesla body around it. Isn't it new and shiny? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> the, the miracle of Tesla is not its chassis. It's what's inside. But then it's, it's interesting because uh, I think you can use the metaphor of a core banking system, you know, 
system as an engine. But, or you could say, actually, it's not the whole engine. It's a battery. And batteries just have not changed for, for a long time. And actually, you can wrap, the, you can wrap a battery in a, you know, in a Tesla engine. Okay, probably that's a bad example. Yeah. But yeah. you can wrap a, a battery in another petrol engine, a state-of-the-art Ferrari, or that battery could be you know, in a different area. And I think that that's a, it's a really interesting conversation. I, I've seen a lot or had a lot at various different conferences of uh, if the, if the core banking engine just does ledger entries, it's not that complex. And actually, Mikhail Panovich from MBank and Nordea you know, argues that, you know, COBOL was great. And, they've, you know, they've done sort of pretty good internet banks based on a very old, super optimized, never falls down, very old banking engine or battery. Um, and that actually you can layer on top of that, you can abstract it with messaging layers and layer on top intelligent, interesting digital services. But it is one of those things that does seem to, I think, just by calling it the kind of core banking engine, do you mean just the thing that manages the ledger, which could be done in COBOL, or are we talking about the full suite of, you know, old applications, 10,000 of them connected with 40,000 interfaces and all of that problem? So, And I think that's part of the problem, right, is a lot of the times they're hardwired in to the core systems. Uh, so it's kind of like having, uh, it's kind of like your heart is hardwired to every vein in your body, like taking it out. But imagine if instead of just taking it out and cutting off the three main arteries, you had to cut out every single vein in your body. Like they're in this really- Brain transplant versus a heart transplant. Vein There's transplant a versus a heart transplant. Yeah, that's that's kind of the difference. And I think, so the, the banking model there, with these core systems, I think is going to be difficult. A lot of people are going to want to have this API world, and there's a, we've seen we've done episodes on the whole stories of APIs. But uh, us, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think one of the key words uh, here for me is collaboration. And you know, businesses like ours are, are built on kind of making creating a space for more collaboration between um, you know financial uh, financial service companies. Um, and so I, I agree with I agree with everything. I, but I think the intent is the intent is good, which is more collaboration, please. And it goes back to your um, point earlier around uh, you know where do drones meet AR meet you know all the other things. It's, collaboration. Yeah, exactly. That kind of creating a space at least you know for a for a kind of melting pot, regardless of what the engine is. You know, we I it's my opinion, and, and you know. For companies like us, that's that's the kind of the the bread and butter. That's the that's the that's the re- that's a secret recipe. I think on almost counter to that point, and maybe <laughs> along, along what Jason was saying was, okay, they might change the core system, but like you know, what does it matter? What's the end service going to be for the consumer? What are the, what are they looking to try and do? That could be more interesting. That could be the more interesting story in which they they could hopefully talk about. Because ultimately, changing the plumbing is, is not of really of interest to the consumer, um, unless that means that we can they can start making money from the bank account, which doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, but you know, what's the service offering that they can start to give, and mm. what's the smarts around that? Um, and maybe a, a Google person can deliver something pretty smart. You know? Maybe we'll, we'll see. I, you know, I think we've we've seen um, you know numerous examples of kind of ex Google or ex Apple or ex wherever kind of going out into banks and not really sort of making the impacts that mm. people would hope they would have in terms of doing it if if anything you see a you know six month disillusionment in terms of actually what they can actually achieve and you know the speed of the organization that they've actually joined so you know i think the time's going to tell on this one we kind of need to push beyond the pr i think on it really now and you know to, to your point jamie it feels like they're saying the right things you know collaboration with fintech good thing adoption of cloud services good thing you know but really the 
the test of time on this one is really going to prove whether they're you know up for doing it or if it's just sort of buzzword bingo the key word you used was the intentions are really good i don't doubt they are in fact we, we've had a few people on the show that really do doubt the intentions of banks I, I don't doubt their intentions i think there are a lot of good people there that are working really hard to do the right thing they just can't execute and, and that's more my worry is will they pull off all these grandiose ambitions or will that be left to to smaller competitors to come along and, and, and kind of do for them? In those big organisations, you've got somebody pulling against them at every point, you know, different organisational goals everywhere. Yeah. And that's just a struggle. It, it, that's the struggle, man. It's 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 real out <laughs> yeah. here in the streets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Represent. <laughs> okay. Um, speaking of which, um, Business Insider, um, our friend uh, Oscar Williams Groot has quoted the City CEO, Citibank, uh, saying the whole banking model's a bit broken and at risk of an Uber moment. So is he uh, quoting uh, Anthony Jenkins, who also said the same thing there, Jamie? Yeah, I think. I yeah. I mean, we've you know we've heard a lot of people um, kind of talk about the Uber moment in 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 banking. Uh, you know, kind of six months ago, I feel like I was reading the exact same headline. But it's interest for me. It's interesting. The comparison is always interesting. And they say kind of the Uber moment, and they list you know challenger banks like of Mondo and and, and Tandem. Monzo. Monzo. Sorry. Oh, we're we're getting there. We're getting there. Get the D out. Sorry. Uh, Monzo Tandem. You know the the the, the usual suspects in in the challenger bank space. And I think. Quoting those companies, you need to bring in more of a Netflix kind of comparison because they are creating products for themselves. Uber are kind of aggregating services that they don't own, you know, which is, you know, a little plug, probably more to what we are doing. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, the likes of uh, Tandem, Mondo, you know, going for Monzo, um, Monzo again. <laughs> uh, it's old habits die hard, Jason. You know, they are going to be creating products themselves, you know, and that for me falls into more of a, a more of a Netflix category where, yes, they're bringing all these services together, but also they're going to be delivering quality um, themselves. And yeah. I think it's the, the comparison is, is, is slightly different, both very exciting, um, you know, and both have their have their place, I think. But, um, you know, different, maybe a different headline. would have. Well, uh, I think you're if you're using that example, or that sort of aggregated model or the bringing together of services, then you're looking towards PSD2 and the sort of API world. So arguably, that Uber moment of banking is a few years away, you know, that could be two or three years away, whereas there's a uh, a more present sort of closer moment mm. of turning traditional digitized banking into truly digital banking that probably isn't the uber moment but is the you know insert company here yeah Facebook i mean moment. so netflix is it's huge now but it was you know a slow thing that rolled out over time you know okay my friends got it that looks cool maybe i want it when we look at typically things like account switching um you know those services um like the challenger banks will be that much better that it will, people will change, but it won't be like, I feel like Uber happened where it was, oh, look, I tried an Uber. And two months later, that's all, that's all anyone used. Mm. Um, it will, I think it will, the, 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 the great service that they can offer will kind of push things forward, but it will be a little bit slower than the Uber thing. But uh, the, So the interesting one about this is the, the city CEO in question, I think it's um, a lady by the name of Sam Smith, um, CEO at FinCap. Um, and again, this one feels like a bit of an advert. She's sort of saying, um, at FinCap, we say we're all about helping ambitious companies grow. Obviously, we want to make money, and that's important. But when you care about the company, you get something out of it. So a bit of an advert. Um, but the cultural point she makes is an interesting one, which is you look at the big investment banks. Um, where do any one of them say their mission is to do anything other than make money? Cultural 
culturally, I think that's a massive, massive problem. Well, actually, if you read um, you know, most of the headlines and most of the annual reports, it's all about helping you achieve your ambitions or there for you. And there's a whole bunch of these where it's like supporting the community. So the actual message coming out of banks isn't the problem, I think. It's the, it's the, the intention and the culture uh, of what the, the organization is. It's the delivers. business model, to be honest. Because yeah. I think it's fine to be doing community outreach. I think it's great to be friendlier and to, you know, to deliver great services. But while you're making a billion a year on unauthorized overdraft fees and, you know, Forex, um, it, it just, it's a bit of a rub, you know? Oh, I'm your mate, by the way, I'm going to fine you. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. hmm, maybe not my friend so much anymore. Or, you know, th- there's, there's just something there that actually, you know, we're back to the Clayton Christensen. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that actually true disruption is business model disruption. And while we've got this sort of big sort of traditional banking infrastructure, thousands of people, hundreds of branches and a lot of weight to carry along and a public that doesn't want to pay for, for their, their banking, um, that's a problem. And it has to be hidden somewhere. And that puts strain on the relationship. It really does. It's kind it's of not like me. It's you. <laughs> okay, so the Telegraph. Jimmy's picked one out here, but um, I think we're all going to weigh in on this one. This one's a bit of the fun story for the week. Um, this is good old Jeremy Corbyn. Bless his cotton socks. Has a plan to democratize the internet. Um, but does he even understand it himself? So this is the the Digital Democracy Manifesto. If you have not read this and you want a chuckle, please, please read this. <laughs> it's so good. It's only a GCSE coursework size so you'll, you'll get through it yeah so, we, so including cover including cover sheet it is four pages long um as manifestos go as manifestos go it's it's pretty um it's pretty in depth um you know think covering topics such as like the universal service network open knowledge library community media freedom and then it, it gets on to some you know kind of bizarre things like platform cooperatives when you kind of dig down into this which we which which i which i will um it gets quite ridiculous uh talking about how uh the national investment bank and regional banks will finance social enterprises whose websites and apps are designed to minimize the costs of connecting producers with consumers in the transport accommodation cultural catering and other important sectors. So let's, let's, let's unpack that. Okay, so people are designing websites and apps. We're going to centrally government fund people to build these things. Because I've always thought we need to put the means of production in the hands of the workers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is like this weird, like weird, like. Well, no, it, it just. I mean, it, it's just. It's it's definitely moving towards that nationalised, you know, communist is, isn't uh, approach, yeah. isn't it? And I think, and 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 you know, kind of touching on that communist point there the the kind of the brains behind this really because let's face it jeremy Corbyn has not written a uh, you know a digital manifesto himself he's i mean it's four pages <laughs> but he has not so written this, he's he's sought help there's and some, some big font on a couple of pages <laughs> yeah, as well let's be honest and, um, it's a good two a four sides let's be honest the uh, the help that he has sought in in this case is the new labor leader um his his digital guru uh, a dr richard barbrook and this fella I mean, in my own personal uh, opinion, is pretty scary. He um, he describes himself as a cybernetic communist. What? Right. Oh, that is, <laughs> Nailed it. That is that is that is true. And um, promotes a website that, and I'm going to try and not laugh while I read this. Promotes a website that trains the militants of cybernetic revolution to come and reenacts the proletariat. <laughs> Proletarian. <laughs> Proletarian struggles of the past in luth- in ludic form. Wow. So there Please, you go. Feel like, free, to, un- feel free to, to unpack that. 
Um, and he tweets things like, comrades unite, comrades unite to thwart the Blairite, Blairite traitors. This is Richard Barbrook, if anyone wants to follow him on Twitter. And, and do you know what the, the tool of this revolution is going to be? Blockchain. Oh, yes. <laughs> the blockchain sickle chain. Yeah, sickle chain. Oh. <laughs> the block and sickle chain. <laughs> there is God. actually almost one good idea in here, chain, no, which is this open knowledge library, which essentially I think he's proposing that we should give... Isn't that Wikipedia? Wikipedia. Or just the internet <laughs> in general. Free, free internet access to a knowledge bank... Right, so if you're using, if like you're, MIT already did. Yeah, if you're connecting to this one place, then it's free internet, which is a fate like the Facebook free uh, internet as well. Yeah, yeah so yeah. internet.org type thing. And internet is a human right, so it should be supplied for free. Wi-Fi is a basic human right. Let me tell you. It, it is worrying though that increasingly it looks like he is going to be re-elected as the Labour leader, right? So despite all of the kind of revolution and all of the uh, the kind of kicking offs of what six seven weeks ago now, in terms of when all of the Brexit fun kind of kicked off, which seems like a lifetime ago now, doesn't it? But, um, you know, he is going to be re-elected and this is his digital manifesto. So. But hey, it could be worse. We could be in the US and we could have a choice between um, somebody that many consider to be corrupt in Hillary and somebody that many consider to be truly crazy in Donald Trump. It's so they, I, I feel for the American voters at this point. Yeah, inter- watching watching him actually deliver this speech, he did it in cool shortage, obviously, because it's tech and yeah. digital. So we had to kind of go to... He was hanging out with the homies. Yeah, exactly. People he came down with homies. He didn't, beard, yeah. he didn't wear a tie. He didn't wear a tie. He has got a beard. Um, but yeah, normally, so normally when he and... normally when he does his uh, his speeches, he's he, you know he's kind of head up, man of the people, confidently speaking. He word for word <laughs> read this paper to an audience of people who were just, I think, struggling to not get the joke. I think is 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 the case. So and then it, he was joined on stage by this pork pie hat wearing um, communist uh, Richard Barbrook. So it turns out the manifesto is actually his speech then. It's not the full basically, manifesto. Basically. Should, should we expect this in a few weeks, Jeremy, do you think? It's or? basically his speech. But I mean, I, I guess connecting this with fintech and banking and, and everything else, it ties with that paper that we seem to um, reference every time we talk about this, about the, the vanishingly small number of people in positions of power, especially in banks and on boards, was it 6%, uh, who have any sort of experience or understanding of technology. And, and in a world... In a world where so much is, is in being, a world in a world where so much <laughs> is being sort of driven by technological change, to have people in charge of education, the government, the major institutions, sort of disconnected from from that sort of new reality, that's a that's a real problem. You left out tax Govern- legislators as well. I, I dare say I <laughs> built a career on knowing a tiny bit about technology in an industry that knows very little about it. Like, it's shh. Sh- <laughs> <laughs> no one say anything. <laughs> but but isn't, isn't that a kind of a, a general reflection on government? Uh, you know, in, in same as medical as well. It's kind of like actually what you find is most people who work in it are like the generalist of general practitioners when it comes to GPs type thing. If you want to diagnose something that you have, you've got a better chance of doing it on Google than you do of going to your doctor. You won't. Well, you could probably get that's the, a bit terrifying though because it's always the worst thing on Google. Uh, don't, I wouldn't recommend that. You, you can definitely get the better drugs to fix it on Google as well. So a friend uh, of mine did what did um, talk about uh, creating a satire site where there was a diagnostic tool. You'd go in, you'd put your your symptoms in and it would just say you're going to die yeah. <laughs> that's essentially what google tells on the yeah, internet that that is <laughs> nhs <God>. direct isn't <laughs> it? Like, but I, you know i think most uh, mps or um you know of of that ilk really don't have a good depth of anything in terms of doing it most of them are pretty good speakers and and that's about it you know their their knowledge 
can be absorbed very quickly. And in my experience, that's what they're very, very good so at doing. So I've a few exceptions to this. I've been really pleasantly surprised by, by some MPs. I mean, it's kind of like um, engineers. There are good ones and bad ones. MPs, there are good ones and bad ones of any political spectrum, right? So you meet a few who generally want to make change, that want to take action, and that really try and engage with the subject and, and start to get it and, and, and listen and, and absorb the subject and come to their own considered opinion of it. Unfortunately, that's not all of them. Um, such is life, sadly. But... Uh, well, moving on, I think uh, one last story for the day. Um, there is now a new named cat on the street. Um, this 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 crazy cat was called Mondo. It's now called Monzo. What's happening here, Jason? What's going on? Why? Why? why is yeah, the this name would change? come to me, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, so Mondo, um, which recently got its banking license, was a subject of a, a threatened trademark dispute. So after Ooh. after looking at it for a, a long period of time, I think the um, the management the leadership realised that actually it wasn't really the name that made the bank or the institution. It was the brand. It was the the growing community, the goodwill, the everything else. So that actually changing the name and involving end customers, consumers, everyone in in doing that was actually an opportunity. It was something interesting. So uh, I forget the absolute numbers. Um, there's a great blog post on monzo.com about the entire naming process, about what happened, about the short list of names, uh, how they were chosen. And actually, that, I think, is a really interesting example, again, of openness. I'm not sure where else you'd see something where you actually talk through the whole process and the names that got kind of thrown out by the side of things. Uh, but essentially, the yeah, the the bank got its new name, uh, Monzo, which I was very proud to be uh, part of that naming process. Yeah. I'm now named Starling and Monzo, so I I claim the named most banks with a you know, on the retail banking side in the UK. I reckon um, you've got to be up there, though. That's, that's you're quite, three for three. Yeah, yeah. that's quite. Yeah. Put on your Twitter bio. I mean, that's that's you need to put on your Twitter bio. Do naming I'm, all the most British banks ever in the UK. There you go. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that. So can, can we talk about the really cool? Um, a Gonzo thing that somebody did. So Gonzo the Muppet. Uh, somebody amazing. took Gonzo the Muppet standing there in a superhero-like pose wearing a Monzo pink t-shirt. And I think it was probably the most epic thing I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> but of course, we, we've got to talk about, Jamie, we've got to talk about the fact that that wasn't the only joke of the week um, that was played on, on the new naming. And one that you were quoted in, in an article, I think, at one point. What, what was the lowdown here? Yeah, I'm... Try not to look at Jason while I talk about this. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so TechCrunch uh, picked up um, and covered uh, another challenger bank, um, Starling. They kind of leapt on an opportunity to um, to commandeer a URL, the web web domain domain of um, getmonzo.co.uk, which was um, you know getmondo was the was the uh, previous uh, web domain, um, so they commandeered this uh, this domain name and they used it as a platform to do a little bit of um, piracy, brand piracy, and um, oh, yeah. advertising. Piracy is a strong word. <laughs> well, a good you know, goof. They commandeered. It was a very good goof. <laughs> it was a good. Goof. It was a good goof. Um, and they commandeered this this URL and directed people to uh, their own challenger bank, which they are. Um, which they are setting up. And it was great. And I tweeted and said this was my, uh, my play of the day. And then something different happened. I mean, it was a very clever move. And the blog post that followed was, uh, it, went, it went a long way to explain why the joke was funny. And that kind of ruined it for me. 
It's, it's when the comedian goes, hey, look, I just told you a joke. This is why it was funny. It, what we did, what I was doing is I was sitting on the toilet and I had this idea about the smells that I make when I'm on the toilet. So I thought I'd turn that into a joke yeah. so that you guys would find it funny and then you might laugh at it. And, I, yeah. and then I've made a blog post about it. And oh, yeah, Unless you're Stuart Lee. It's very difficult to do. Yeah, yes. Stuart Lee can pull it off. <laughs> Stuart Lee can pull off telling people why wow. a joke is funny. Yeah. Maybe it was. Maybe it was a very, like, very deadpan sort of this is why it's funny. That, that is not <laughs> how the blog read, I'll be yeah. honest. It, yeah. was, it wasn't a, a counter joke with it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 we did a funny thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I gen, genuinely, you know, the fact that they had to put something out to, to address it uh, just feels like exactly like you say if you have to explain the joke it's probably not funny type thing the the celebration thing in itself you know like the slight hacking stuff sort of just slightly smacks of Starling should be focusing on building a bank to me you know like the fact that at no point did the designer who designed the thing or the person who bought the domain or Anne signing it off go and we got better things to do, guys. You know, it kind of feels like that that should have come up at least once during that, that entire process type thing. So, you know, it just feels a bit bad form. For, in my personal opinion, it feels a bit bad form from Starling Bank. And I'm sure they've got better things to do than be uh, than be doing. I'll this. be honest. It made me lol. I liked it. I thought it was pretty funny. And I'm willing to bet there are a lot of people that work in a lot of these these other banks. They're just like, yeah, that's pretty funny. Well done, guys. But if they'd have left it there, then everyone would have had a chuckle and moved on. Yeah. And uh, that could have been exactly. quite smart. No, no joke. I've bought get HSBC, get Barclays. Because <laughs> you, know, you just want to send people in to get tweet, them, don't you? So, yeah. Where you directed them to? Just a picture of your face. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I guess, it's, I guess it's interesting from a, um, from a few perspectives. One, if HSBC had done that to yeah. Barclays, like how would that have been viewed? You know, how would that have worked? On the other hand, you know, sometimes the best jokes are those sort of very close and knuckle that half of the audience grimaces and like groans and then the other half the audience likes. I know, uh, was it Rob from Next Money uh, put a poll out on Twitter as to, you know, was this funny or was it, you know, too far? And it was close. It was something like, you know, 60-40 one way or the other. So it wasn't... Um, or 50-50. Yeah, it wasn't universally <laughs> hated. I, I think that's what I mean about the joke itself. Like, it, it had some lols. You know, they had some lols. Um, but, it, it, yeah, it was that explaining it afterwards. That's, that's criminal. I think if you look at the big picture, it's, it's just great to see that the competition is there. Yeah. And that what, what we're really talking about here is there are challenger banks. Yeah, and challenging each lovely? other. And, yeah. and, and I think on that note, we should, uh, we should throw it to our sponsor and thank them very much for, for bringing the show to us this week. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Thank you very much to our sponsor. Uh, and the story of the week, what has put the UK at the top of the fintech charts, which uh, I think we need some Top of the Pops music or something. We need a little jingle. We, we need more jingles on this show, Jason. It needs to happen. <laughs> uh, so we've got Lawrence Wintermeyer, the CEO of Innovate Finance, who's kindly joined us. Thanks for being with us, Lawrence. Uh, th- thanks for the invite. So, Lawrence, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Innovate Finance and how this ties into a government initiative called Project Innovate. How do those two relate in any way? Well, Innovate Finance uh, was conceived by the UK government policy team as uh, a members association. Um, they really felt there was a need to bring together 
fintech, which is an amorphous mass of everything from two people startups to institutions, and, and something that could effectively bring together the UK community, you know, what we call the ecosystem now, in, in order to do policy and regulation and advocacy lobby work. Um, programs, which is where the FCA and Project Innovate comes in, and and broadly promotion, um, you know, write the editorial narrative, not just for fintechs and our members, but for what was going on in fintech. Um, and so we've been up and running for two years, and, you know, that's us. We've got over 250 members now, um, you know, spanning that range of startups to institutions. And our, our biggest relationship, um, you know, with the government on a practical basis is working with the FCA. Uh, the FCA is the UK financial services uh, regulator um, that looks after uh, most of the areas of fintech that the community is focused on. They've set up Project Innovate, uh, really, which is a, a collaborative and open scheme to help fintechs accelerate their authorization process when it comes to regulation. Uh, many of our members are regulated and go through Project Innovate. And, and so uh, we're uh, constructive in helping the FCA um, look at how uh, they can improve the process um, and, uh, in general, how our members can better engage in it. Um, an, an example of that is, uh, you know, uh, for example, we call it the Regulatory Accelerator, where one of our partners, a legal firm, Hogan & Lovells, has developed uh, a regulatory accelerator to make fintechs fit for purpose even before they get to Project Innovate. And, and, and really, this is, you know, lo- looking at how we broadly help fintechs, um, you, you know, not just accelerate and be more capital efficient about their own regulatory uh, processes, uh, but, but help project innovate, uh, get fintechs through the regulation process. It's, it's, it's a broad spectrum of stuff. And let's face it, regulation isn't easy. So every little certainly makes a huge, huge, huge difference. Um, and I think... Um, just kind of pivoting away slightly from from just the membership to also um, you know London's position in the world in, in fintech, uh, we've had various researchers uh, pieces coming out putting UK you know towards the top of the charts, um, particularly London you know seen as a world fintech hub, um, and and you know, we depends how you measure it right from an ecosystem perspective or capital flows which I know is a subject near and dear to your heart maybe maybe there are other parts of the world with more cash and capital injection but maybe this is a real strong place what's contributed to London being considered the top of the pops you know really the best place to be well uh, you raise a number of interesting points in that you know London has always been uh, through modern history a financial services capital so without even looking at fintech Last year, we were ranked the number one financial services hub. Uh, the UK is ranked second on the global uh, innovation index. Um, I think London is ranked five on the ease of doing business index. So London is what we call, I think, in this you know modern world, a connected city uh, where uh, you know capital comes together with talent and, and industry uh, to create things. Uh, London is also a, a very multicultural, uh, secular environment to do business. So, um, you know, it's got it's got quite a bit going for it before fintech. Fintech is important in that, really, in in the drive, uh, the government's drive uh, post two thousand and eight financial crisis to really um, encourage more competition in financial services, making choices better for consumers. Um, you know, not just choices in services, but how they're accessed, prices, etc. That that was really helpful to kick off the, the the you know the fintech movement here. In addition, the UK has very favourable. 
uh, rates for um, you know investors getting tax exemption and technology investments. So those things have really come come together to really help. Uh, what is a global trend anyway? And I just think, you know, in my 25 years in financial services, it's time for financial services to come into the digital world in a a, a real big way, you know, in a in a sort of a mobile app way. And and so that's all happened. But the the, the biggest thing that um, that you know globally is pointed out. I mean, you know, London and New York are very similar when it comes to the number of you know uh, fintech STEM resources, you know, science, technology, mathematicians, experience, and financial services. You know, both have 60-some odd thousand people in the community. The capital bases are similar, for example, between London and New York. Uh, but but uh, again, the UK, and, and primarily driven through the, the London ecosystem, we have the regulator, the P- PSR, and Treasury, who have really focused on things like Project Innovate. You know, we have a regulatory accelerator that the regulator has just set up. Um, we've tried to accelerate, um, you know, challenger bank uh, licensing. So uh, the, the government has really uh, done quite a bit to collaborate and accelerate fintechs. And, and right now, um, we believe that that's probably the biggest comparative differentiator uh, with the ecosystem here. So I think that's super interesting. You know, people often talk about um, the rule of law here and the time zone and, and you know, things that London always had going for it. And I think it's interesting that you talk about it, you know, first and foremost, here's a financial services hub and then secondly behind that you've got a, a, a government and regulatory ecosystem that's that's really quite progressive it, it sounds like but does that all then get threatened by the brexit vote does that get thrown up in the air in some way what are you, what are your views here well, well uh, r- rather than my views let's look at uh, what our members uh, what our members say and uh, immediately after the brexit we pulled you know more than 200 plus of our startup members and, and had over 150 conversations with institutions, government, venture capital. Uh, but broadly, the results of the membership in the post-Brexit view was, well, look, what's important to financial services is maintaining uh, access to the, the common market and something we call financial services passporting here in Europe um, and making sure that we've increasingly got access to, to fintech talent. And, and, and that's not just really European-focused. We have a scheme here also called Tier 1, Tier 2 visas, which uh, allow either startups or institutions to bring in STEM graduates and, and people that are important to the digital economy. Um, so I, I, think, I think that's all you know, good practical stuff. And m- many different uh, industry bodies and people in the city uh, really lobbied for the same things. That's important to financial services. The brass tax for most of our fintech members are, uh, though, that Brexit one way or another doesn't really impact them. They're either domestic plays or their plays that are scaling platforms globally. Brexit certainly may cause some degree of thinking uh, about domicility if passporting is an issue around either MIFID or, you know, other areas of, of, of fintech. But, you know, for the most part, what was a, a fairly a dramatic shock to the, to the system in the city and that people weren't expecting Brexit, uh, for the most part, the community, both on the institutional and the startup side, are just doing business as usual and, and, and getting on with things. So, um, and, and I don't think that's surprising. I mean, um, you know, that's the way capital works. And, um, you know, it's working at a, a, a speed that's quicker than, than government can probably legislate in this case. Often the, often the case. So you don't see the, your members packing up, packing their bags and moving abroad immediately. Or if they do, it might just be kind of so, some small legal change of where they're domiciled rather than where they have most of their employees or something along those lines is kind of what we see is more realistic. 
The, the important thing about Innovate Finance, and it's one of the reasons that uh, I, I joined the firm, is that we have um, an open, inclusive, and, and fintech secular view of the world. Um, you know, the capital is global, the talent is global, and, and digital is quite often global. Um, so, whilst there may or may not be advantages for other hubs, uh, we, we've just with uh, uh, Swift in a tribe, uh, one of our our key partners launched the Global Fintech Hub Federation, where we've connected up, I think we've got 24 hubs that have signed up, and we've connected up some of the hubs that you've mentioned Mm -hmm. in order that we can openly collaborate and participate uh, in exchanging on standards, trends, where capital is moving. So, so, uh, you know, our view is good luck to any other hub. Can you replicate the London ecosystem easily? Uh, No, uh, would be our view. Would you you be able to, you know, like saying, would you be able to replicate the West Coast ecosystem, which many people are trying all over the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, g- good luck. It, it takes many years to do that. But I think if we focus, uh, particularly in any Brexit scenario, on building bridges with fintech hubs, um, the capital and talent is global. And I think, as, as you've just pointed out, Simon, if there are issues around passporting or trade, generally companies work around those. But, you know, you domicile where you find your money, your talent, your core proposition. And again, in this case, we've got a regulator where you know the opportunity of you accelerating your regulatory authorization is important and and so nobody knows how that will work out in a post brexit world anyway it's just too early to speculate on those things and actually if you're a startup wouldn't it be nice to have 60 million customers to get started with with a great regulatory environment and and then to be able to think about from that you have a nice problem when it's like how do i move into europe or into the rest of the world and that that federation seems like a, a, a fintech hub seems like an interesting idea um, and it strikes me as interesting that, um, you know, those partnerships are kind of, um, you know, really advocates of, of kind of openness. Um, and another example of openness I've seen is, is being advocates of kind of open banking and PSD2 and uh, the CMA um, report recently. Um, you know, are you, are you in support of these sorts of initiatives generally and opening up what's happening with banking? And, and what do you think is going to be impactful there? Well, in, indeed, uh, we were a joint secretariat in the open you know, banking API work. Um, we, we, we supported the recommendations. Um, we certainly support, uh, you, you know, the CMA second round of recommendations, which, which came out last week. Um, and, you know, bro- broadly, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, open, if you take a chapter even out of the open source community, where I think a lot of the, um, you know, the methods, the techniques and, and uh, the tools that we're using to help collaborate and accelerate development in the community have come from. Um, open APIs are, are one of our best routes uh, to, to, you know, achieving competition, greater diversity and choice. So we're, we're huge supporters of that. In, in the context of, you know, the Payment Services Directive 2, PSD2, you've mentioned absolutely. I mean, from, from, from our perspective, from 40,000 feet, um, you know, we, we, we're asking questions around why isn't there a single open API or payment standard in the world giving digital? I mean, why, why, why does it change in every country that you, you, you know, you, you, you go to anyway? So I think this is an area, again, where, um, you know, digital and fintech has a lot to deliver. Um, to the consumer environment. Yeah, the the API side, and so I think you raise an interesting point. How do the opening of APIs and then potentially new market structures like blockchain come together, right? So it's nice to have a new market structure, but if I can't connect that into a bank, if I've got this new payments rail and I can't connect it in, then if nobody uses it and nobody's connected to it, the, the thing kind of ends up pretty useless, right? And, and you're right, there has been an explosion, I think, from my perspective of, of that whole blockchain thing. But how do we start making this stuff a reality 
society? I mean, what's what's next for these recommendations? Do we need um, some education in, in terms of you know people inside the banks as to what the benefits might be to them? Is there are there things where we just trust the technologies to get on with it? What's what's the right approach here? Do we think it's kind of just too early to say or? Well, well, well um, we, we, we don't. And again, I think that, uh, you, you know, most of the recommendations that uh, have come out, I know that, that you're familiar with, will, you know, convene the banks to start working on this. But I, I do think that we need to look at, um, you know, particularly some of the areas of governance structure and, and how, for example, organizations like Innovate Finance, um, you know, can convene the voice, particularly of fintechs and, you know, what we uh, what we promote in terms of, you know, uh, an approach to open APIs uh, anyway. I mean, you know, from my own perspective, if you look at uh, particularly what's gone on in, in, in digital, either, you, you know, um, you know, through the Internet or, or through what's going on in apps anyway, um, you know, generally uh, standards do get opened up over a period of time. Mm-hmm. People jump on and adopt them, uh, recognizing that, you know, the, the marginal cost of the utility isn't an area where you're going, most people are going to make money in. Um, you know, they're going to make money in offering um, good products and services to consumers. But I, I guess there's, um, there's an interesting sort of parallel there with other digital businesses, uh, where if you look at API development in areas that aren't finance, I think if you go to programmable web, there are 15,000 APIs listed for a variety of companies. I think quite often you see not standards develop, but actually individual companies offer very specific APIs. A Google API is very different from a Facebook API, which is very different from a, an Apple API, um, which hasn't prevented uh, innovation in those areas. So I wondered if you had a view of the standards like email or file transfer or payments versus actually those sort of value-add APIs that actually individual uh, players then develop in order to, tr- to use, in order to, um, to create market position. The, the FCA appointed us um, uh, the program to lead uh, something called an industry sandbox consultation. And, and really the exam question is, what would an industry sandbox look like? How would it work? Um, what are the incentives? Who would play? And, and so I think the question you asked is an excellent one. I, I've not actually come across a consistent set of answers to that question. And, and we're hoping that through the consultation, uh, uh, the end solution of an industry sandbox will put the incentives in place uh, in order to be able to discriminate between some of those choices. Because ultimately, um, we need a place where people can put their APIs and where the market can decide what is useful a utility or what is value-add rather than have us sit around in a room and talk about it. And, and again, getting back to the, you know, open API work, you know, great. Everything starts with a, a core group of architects. Clearly, where there's major infrastructure involved, you need architectural leadership. Uh, one of my biggest learnings in, in the open source world is, uh, you know, uh, if you build it, they might not come. So the best thing to do is, you know, really get a lot of those standards into the open, uh, you know, the open API or open marketplace to really test consumption early. So I, I hope whatever course it is we take, particularly where we've got some industrial lifting together, that we've got enough behavioral prototyping in the process uh, to make sure that we're we're, we're going to get the demand um, or the demand will be generated across the community and not just restricted to a small number of players uh, for, for whatever reasons you, you know the design um, you know or the access might, 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 might you know constrain itself. I think it's super important to have a position where people can learn and where they can learn without 
if they make a mistake, they're not going to have the full might of the regulator come down on them and kick them because otherwise that's going to stop people from making the kind of innovation and change we really need. But also whilst they're in that kind of you know sand pit, as it were, they, they also can't do too much damage. There has to be limits in terms of, of what they can actually do. You know, we're seeing a lot of new banks coming to the UK over the next 12 months, um, you know, with at least six having been given a license. Uh, how do you see that banking landscape shifting? You know, is that something that where we're going to see more and more of these banks coming, do you think, given what you're hearing um, from either members or government and so on from a policy perspective? Or uh, is this something where we've seen just a glut of challenger banks and we're going to see no more? Is, is it- well, again, I, you know, too, too early to tell, but... Um uh, you know, as a, a result of the efforts in, in, in Treasury and, and, you know, the regulator expediting the process to, to make sure that we are uh, creating greater competition, we have many more challenger banks. Um, my own view is the more uh, the merrier uh, generally, but um, I, I think it's a difficult sector depending on, on, you know, what particular market you're focused on. Um, you know, Simon, that retail banking here and particularly current account banking is generally free and is paid for by overdrafts. Um, the inertia uh, that you see in account switching here is, uh, you, you know, uh, famous. So I really do think that d- digital or challenger banks really need to be segment specialists and, you know, really very much need to be focused on how it is that they acquire customers. So, so they've got to have great propositions. So it'll be great to see um, you know, this whole new cohort coming through and, and how well it does. In, in some of the earlier challenger banks, I think, you know, clearly have demonstrated that there is demand in SME segments and, and have done that reasonably well. Um, so, so let's wait and see. And, and, and gee, you know, f- financial services in, in the way that we, you know, talked about uh, sort of adoption and momentum in a lot of West Coast digital companies, um, it just doesn't appear to me that quite often you get financial services companies, whether they're uh, focusing on retail or SME markets that, that have those adoption curves that, you know, the big West Coast retail plays did. Uh, I think we need to keep an eye on it because, you know, generally it, it, it takes a decade or so to get through a full cycle of, you know, adopting customers, uh, you know, proving your proposition works and, and eking out a, a, a margin if, you, mm-hmm. you know, if that's what your, uh, you know, capital or investors require of things. And it's just a bit of a slower burn than, um, you know, than some of the sort of big digital stuff that we're used you to. You can see why the West Coast VCs go after big consumer plays like Facebook and Snapchat and those sorts of things because those businesses can make money off advertising they take over the world. And I think the assumption has been there will be that of fintech, whereas my view has kind of always been, and it sounds like you're driving to a similar position, which is actually banks risk this kind of um, death by a thousand cuts approach, where on the one hand, they've got negative, you know, moving towards negative interest rates and making less money on the traditional model. You've got challenges coming in and, you know, stopping them from winning new customers rather than getting old customers to switch. And over time, that gradually becomes, you know, a pressure cooker that builds up and only the fittest survive. Which, which hopefully works out for, for consumers. That's good. Well, well you, you raise an interesting point, and, um, uh, you know, without getting on to my favorite topic of, of things like structural capital, I just think if you look at, um, you know, the West Coast playbooks and, in, um, you know, um, some of what they, you know, a few years ago we called hyper-growth digital plays, uh, the reality is whether you're, you're talking about, you, you, know, uh, you know, old school Amazon, you're talking about Google or Facebook, Broadly, there's a 10-year investment to a liquidity event, you know, sure. an IPO. 
Um, it's it's been cut down, I think, to seven and a half, and I can't remember. It might have been Facebook that, that's cut that down. And and you need really deep pockets. So you know, forgetting about what the revenue model is, and you know, fine, it's it's advertising revenue in a lot of these cases. Um, you need to have deep pockets, and it's a big investment. I actually don't think fintech is any different to that. Uh, but the two biggest drivers, uh, you, you know, that, that are not dis- dissimilar for institutions and startups are, one, regulatory cost. That burns capital, whether you're big or small. And, and two, getting new customers, you know, your, your sort of adoption rate, yeah. acquiring customers. And, and, and those things are the two things that both institutions and fintechs have in common and appear to me that they're doing much better at collaborating on, only in that, as you mentioned, gee, if you're a bank now, um, you know, negative yields on fixed income, along with your own, you know, capital adequacy requirements and your share price, you know, aren't really helpful to the traditional banking model or, or your future. So it's 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 a pretty tough space if you're an institution. I would agree. I, and would I guess agree. it's that it's that change of climate. You know, I think David uh, Breer relies on the the whole dinosaurs. You know, lived in a, a certain world until the. A meteorite fell out of the sky, you know, eclipsed the sun, and suddenly the climate changes, and the best shape to be is a small mammal rather than a massive dinosaur. Yeah. And I guess that combination of both the macroeconomic environment, the regulatory environment, and the digital shift that's happening across society means that the right shape for a bank or financial services, you know, could be different or, or could start to be different. In, in, indeed. I mean, you, you know, I think that the, the practical thing to focus on is that if you're an institution, you know, uh, you have capital, you know, you've got EBIT targets, and, and you've got an institution that's biased towards protecting it, managing risk and compliance, and extracting margin out of your value chain. You know, you're not um, you're not incented to, to interrupt in a Clay Christensen sense. Um, if you're a startup, um, you, you you don't care about any of that. Yeah. You know, you're agile. You want to do stuff. But you, you don't have the capital to deal with regulatory um, you know, situations. And, and, you know, the bank actually has tens of thousands of customers quite right. often. So I, I think in many cases, um, it, it is a really good fit if they can both, uh, you know, work it out. And, and the community here in London has really started to work out how to collaborate. Uh, it's early days. There's lots of work to do. But the, but the journey has started. And, and, and we've been really encouraged by that. It doesn't mean there aren't the Ubers in, in in financial services. I just think they're difficult to see for the reasons that we've spoken about. Very interesting point. So, Lawrence, uh, I think we've reached the, the our allotted time. I, I want to really sincerely thank you for joining us. That was tremendously interesting from my perspective. I really enjoy your, your views on the world. What should people know about Innovate Finance? How can people find out, reach out, find out more about what you guys are all, all doing and, and what's up? Yeah, just, just Google us and connect to any of the bits that, uh, you know, pop up on, on, on Google. Uh, that's probably the best way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, re- reach out to you and we'll give you all of the appropriate stuff so that they can connect to us, um, you know, through your own properties. Um, but, uh, yeah. Fintech Insiders, you, you heard it here first. All right, uh, Lawrence, thanks again. Um, I think uh, we are now going to um, head out to the last part of our show. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks again to our guests, uh, Lawrence Wintermeyer, Jamie Campbell, and Ed, who doesn't have a last name on my uh, Google Doc sheet here. So, Ed, you will remain last nameless. And don't forget, everybody, next Money in London, 14th of September, you can still get those discounted tickets. Inside of 30, that's inside of 30 for a 30% discount. That's the best discount money can buy, brought to you by at Fintech Insiders. Find us next week. Look forward to seeing you.